HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Brooklyn Slate. BrooklynSlate.com for more. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. your ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. Follow us on Instagram at feast.yr.ears. I just want to start today's show. This is my 13th episode. It is the final show of the fall 2015 season. And just wanted to give a a shout out and a thank you to all the fine folks here at Heritage for having me start my show. Um, And I look forward to continuing it in the future. We'll be back again in the spring, starting January 6th. Uh, Today, by phone, joining us is Barbara Clayman. Barb is my aunt. Uh, she and my mom grew up in Tenafly, New Jersey, and Barb now lives in Pittsburgh. So she's not able to be in the studio, but thank you, Barb, for taking the time to be on the phone with us. My pleasure. Um, can you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about uh, what you do now? Sure. I am a chef. Um, I have not always been a chef, but right now I am working on a protein and fiber bar that I call Barb's Bars, really original name. And um, it is it comes in three flavors. And I just started a website and selling it about, oh, I'd say a month ago. It's a, a brand-new uh, project for me. I've never started a business before. So that's what I'm working on right now is getting Barb's Bars up and off the ground and hopefully it'll become a success i hope so too i'm uh, a little bit biased being 
being that we're related, but I think <laughs> I think they're delicious, and I think everybody should uh, should check it out. They're a they're a um, really healthy alternative to something like a um, you know not that power bars and and those sorts of things are not Luna bars are not necessarily healthy, but I think that those things sort of all started from a point of view of people who were into the outdoors and into hiking and wanted something all natural and have the big O organic on them. But now if you read those labels, they've got all kinds of weird stuff in them. And and mine, I think mine taste better. Mine taste homemade. Um, I developed them for myself as a way to help lower my cholesterol and, and lipid levels. And I hated... Well, I shouldn't say hate it. I dislike the bars that are on the market right now. I find that they all kind of meld as one flavor, whether that's the citric acid that's put in, used as preservatives, or it's that they've been manufactured <clears throat> to the point now where flavor really isn't the main concern. And what most people tell me is that my bars are just delicious. So They are. So everybody should check out www.barbsbars.com. Uh, and I would, I would hope that there's still time, if someone's listening today, that they can order them if they wanted to gift them. Probably not Hanukkah, right? We're running out of time for shipping there, but certainly if yes. someone wanted them for yes, Christmas. Yes, Hanukkah we've run out of time, yeah. but if you want them as a gift for Christmas or first of the year, too, um, there's plenty of time for that. And I ship them in a beautiful gold box with an off-white silver ribbon. So if you go online today, probably, what, what do they usually say, to the 20th? of December. We can probably get them there for you by Christmas. Great. Well, that's, that's awesome. So I want to step back from, uh, from Barb's bars. Um, and you know, you grew up, um, and, and the family was, was living in, uh, in Tenafly and you talk about the first thing that you learned to cook being challah, um, being bread with the family. Yes. Um, and I, I would love, uh, you know, to hear that, to hear that story. What do you, what do you remember and who did you learn that from? I learned it from my mom, from your grandma Raynor, and she she was an interesting woman. I'm I'm not sure that she knew how to cook a lot of things when she first got married, but she was constantly clipping things out of magazines and her sister lived very close by and they would teach each other to make things. Her mother um, made some traditional dishes that that grandma Raynor knew how to make brisket, and um, we called it apple charlotte, and it was kind of an apple pie. So there were a group of recipes that she knew how to make, but she wanted to learn more. Mm. And so challah was not something I remember in my grandmother's kitchen, so she decided that she'd try to find some recipes. And one of the first recipes that she found was this one that contained um, 14 cups of flour and a cup and a half of honey. Hmm. And for you, for those of you out there who know about baking, honey is usually very difficult to use in a yeast recipe in terms of it takes much longer to rise. Right. It's a more complex sugar than just granulated, right? Correct. Correct. And so she would make this recipe, and in the recipe, the directions would say, make the dough and then let it rise for two hours. Hmm. And then you would punch it down and let it rise for another two hours. And then you would punch it down, form it, and let it rise for another two hours. And I vividly remember the first time she decided to try this recipe, it was about 7 o'clock at night. (laughs) 
And so there we were, and I, you know, decided that I'd stay up and help her. And I, I can't even remember. I, I must have been maybe eight or nine years old. And it got to be one o'clock in the morning, <laughs> and we were still waiting for this dough to rise. Well, but you got to have it for breakfast, right? Exactly. So finally, I went to bed. I have no idea what time she went to bed or, or how long it took her. But we had had fresh challah for breakfast the next morning. So this is not a recipe that you start on on Friday morning in hopes. Well, you could start it Friday morning, but it's not one of the quick recipes. I've gathered so many challah recipes over the years, and I have one that I can get start to finish one hour. But that was the first recipe I remember making with her, and I kind of thought to myself, hmm, maybe, maybe this baking thing isn't really as easy as I thought. Maybe I don't really want to do it. But um, over the years, we, we managed to find other recipes, and we also learned that you could put it in the refrigerator overnight and let it slowly rise for the last rising and then bake it fresh the next morning. Ah. So. That's uh, yeah. I mean, I, I have a lot of I have lots of memories of my grandma, your mother, um, cooking um, and and baking, and, and obviously, um, you know, it, it is the time of year where <clears throat> Christmas cookies are on lots of people's minds, and I think I probably you know I would say that as a kid, I think I have earlier memories of the cookies than understanding what either Christmas or Hanukkah or the holiday season was even about. But I have such clear memories. I remember when I was, you know, probably five or six, mm -hmm. I remember that I, I was really into counting. Math was something that was fascinating to me. And I remember so clearly we were in my house and you and mom and grandma were baking. Mm -hmm. And I was counting. I was keeping yeah. track of the number of cookies and it was in the thousands. Yes, I, I vividly remember that as well, and it was hysterical because up until that point, we had never counted, and so we really didn't know, and by that time, the volume of cookies had dramatically changed. So do you know the story of how this started? Um, I do, but I think as my guest, you should really tell it, and, and, and I'll, I, there are probably details that I don't remember. So Okay, so, so when, when I was growing up, when I was five and six, um, we were not very wealthy, and, and I don't want to say we were poor, but we struggled. And um, my Grandpa Leon, your grandpa, my mm -hmm. father, started his own business, so it was really tight. So Grandma, my mom, decided that there was she had to do something to help, and so she decided that she'd try to bake cookies and sell them. And so she did that every year for maybe the first five years. I remember, you know, trays of cookies going out the door and n never knowing where. I honestly don't know who she sold them to. Mm. But as the business grew, there used to be a hotel motel show at the Javits Center. And she decided that she would bring cookies to the show. Because she and my dad and um, my brother were in business together, and my mom was the secretary, and so she would bring cookies. And it became this huge tradition that every year everybody waited for these Christmas for the cookies. cookies at the Javits Center. From the Berkowitz family. Let's just be clear from, about that. From the Berkowitz family, <laughs> yes, exactly. And then when your, your mom, my sister, was seven years older, so she was out of the house you know, when I was by about 12 years old. And so she decided that she wanted to make the cookies as well. And so one year she came down and we all started making cookies together. And from that point on, every single year, it would either be at grandma's house, your mom's house, or my house. 
And what ended up happening was because there were three of us and we had to split whatever we made so that we all got equal shares, we would start doubling and tripling and quadrupling recipes. And that's what you remember was, was that one year when we probably quadrupled recipes and ended up with thousands and thousands of cookies. And And then it became, what do we do with them? What do we put them in? And this was before that you could buy the big Rubbermaid boxes or the um, Ziploc boxes. And so your dad started getting um, antique tins. Mm. I didn't realize that's where the tins came from. We started storing the cookies in these antique tins. And Grandma Raynor, my mom, um, didn't have antique tins. And honestly, I don't remember what she stored them in. Hmm. But I do know your mom stored them in tins. I stored them in tins. And to this day, we still have some of those tins. And we have continued the tradition. So last year, I was in Brooklyn making cookies. This past week, I was in Jackson, Wyoming making cookies. Excellent. And with my son and our daughter is coming down from Buffalo this coming weekend, and we're making cookies. And so we are now spreading the cookie tradition. <laughs> well, I'm sorry that we didn't make it to Pittsburgh this year, but next year next year we will. We're going to make cookies on Sunday with Moxie and Frank. Great, great. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a tradition that I think is, you know, for me, it's it's more ingrained than just about any other at the holidays. And, of course, you know, the, the cookie recipes and the different types of cookies have grown over the years, but there are, you know, sort of, I feel like there's sort of like the canon of like maybe, you know, eight to 12 recipes. And then we always add in a couple here and there every year. And I think, exactly, exactly. I think last I think, year, I think when my mother started out, maybe there were five right. or six. And then you, I remember lots of them coming in from your mom, from mm-hmm. ginger snaps were from your mom. Yep. Nutmeg cookies were from your mom. The almond pecan, the pecan bars were from your mom. And then as I got older, you know, I started bringing recipes in. And I think the last time you were in Pittsburgh was maybe two years ago. And I think we hit 20 varieties, yep. if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think we did 20 varieties and somewhere north of 4,000 individual cookies and that was just and and just in a weekend you brought one suitcase just for cookies yes we we brought an entire suitcase of cookies back i mean i you know i was talking with uh with someone earlier today about this talking about the the show coming up and i said you know no this is for you know last last year when you came to brooklyn you know i remember i picked you up on a friday at the airport at LaGuardia, and then Mm -hmm. we started baking that afternoon and baked basically until 11 or 12 at night and got up Saturday morning and we had two stand mixers going in the kitchen and we baked all day Saturday and then we baked until like noon on Sunday and then you left with your suitcase of cookies. (laughs) That's right. right, We did. And, and, you know, this is serious business. This is not for the faint of heart. It it also, I mean, over the years I've had friends come over and after an hour or two, they, they say, Oh, we're done. Bye. But no, we, we, this is, Serious business, yep. and uh, we don't let anything stand in our way. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you have a favorite? You know, somebody asked me that the other day, and I, I don't. You know, it it changes. So, um, I used to love the butter cookies, uh, Grandma Rosa's butter cookies, which are just your typical, you know, round butter cookie with sprinkles on it. And then um, when I became friends with Angela Grodance in Morristown and her Italian heritage brought the Pignoli cookies into our lineup, oh. I loved the Pignoli cookies. 
And then two years ago, I was reading uh, Smitten Kitchen yep. on there, and she had this crazy uh, brownie cookie whoopie pie, and that became my favorite. So it really does change, you know, what my mood is that year. Um, you know, some years I love the ginger snaps, and so I, I can honestly say that I don't have a favorite. The ginger snaps are, have been my, always been my perennial favorite. I think it's because I, I lean towards savory a little bit. And so mm-hmm. I feel like the ginger cookie sort of satisfies that as well as being sweet. Um, but the the classic butter cookie also is such a great recipe because I think that, you know, there's recipes get more complicated and people want, you know, this and that and flavorings and different spices and things. But I, that, that great grandma, my great grandma's butter cookie recipe really is, I think, absolutely stellar. And we'll, I'll, I'll get it up on the, on the show page um, after this. There was a story that my mom used to tell actually about the two of you, I believe – trying to bake with grandma rosa and (laughs) and trying to write down her recipes right yes yes correct she um she came here from germany i think in about 1920 something she was 14 years old and um she brought with her the knowledge from her mother of making recipes from her, her memory. Mm. And she made incredible pie dough. We, as I mentioned in the beginning, um, we had what we called uh, apple charlotte, which is an apple pie that she made in a cast iron skillet. The pie dough was almost paper thin. The apples, as she would say, were schnitzed very thin and became layers, and it was coaxed almost to the point of applesauce. And when it came out of the oven, you had to put a big plate on it and flip it over, and it was always the moment of truth whether it was going to fall on the floor, and and Grandma Rosa never dropped it, never anything. It was just amazing. And when we would watch her make the pie dough, we would say, well, how much is in it? And she goes, um, you know, a little of this, a little of that. And she did it by feel. And wow. so one of our cousins one time took a bowl, and as she would add ingredients to the bowl, she would put this other little bowl under it and try to catch it and measure it. <laughs> but the trick was that she said, well, let me do it a couple times. Every time she did it, there was a different amount. And I think that... Uh, when you get to learn the dough and you and you get the feel for it, some days if it's a little more humid, you might le- need a little more flour. Some days if it's really dry, you might need a little more butter, a little more liquid. And so it was, I have probably nine pie dough recipes from Grandma. Wow. And so my sister and I both, you know, had, yep. had your mom and I both had many, many recipes from Grandma. And they were a little bit different. You know, mine were a little different from hers. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the, in, in baking, I mean, as I've gotten older and done more things with like bread and, and pie dough, um, you know, your fingers really are what is, you know, is, is the, the comparison I would make, it would be to like tasting a sauce, right? I mean, you taste a sauce and you change it and you season it and your, your hands do that part of it when you're baking. Exactly. Exactly. And, and she had done it so many times, she didn't even think about it. And I think that, ironically, you and your cousin Josh both have got that feel for pie dough and for baking. Yeah. And um, I guess it's innate. 
I'm, I'm so-so. You know, I stick to a recipe for pie dough. Right. Well, I mean, maybe, I, I guess maybe, you know, it's, it's one of those genetic traits that they haven't quite mapped yet in the gene or something, right? Exactly. It's the pie genome. <laughs> the pie genome. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take, take a short break and hear from one of the sponsors here at Heritage Radio. And when we come back, uh, we'll keep talking with Barb about food and life in Pittsburgh. Brooklyn Slate Company is a collaborative effort from Brooklyn graphic designer Sean Tice and Parsons graduate student Christy Hedeka. After visiting Christy's family slate quarry in upstate New York in the spring of 2009, the two grabbed a few pieces for use as all-purpose boards back home in Brooklyn. They found a number of purposes for the slate and began gifting pieces to friends. The response was so overwhelmingly positive that the two struck out to produce a line of slate products. They now make regular trips to the family quarry in upstate New York to handpick their favorite pieces of black and red slate. Some of the slate is sourced from the quarry graveyard, a collection of odd-shaped pieces that were ultimately destined to be ground for use as road cover or baseball diamonds. They then transport the pieces to their studio in Red Hook, Brooklyn, where they do additional cutting and clean the stone to be food slate. Every single piece of packaging that comes with their products, from the envelope to the burlap bag, can be repurposed for other uses. The end result is a product completely unique in cut, shape, color, and overall presentation. For more information and to order, visit brooklynslate.com. Are you there? Hello, 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 hello. I'm talking to you. Hi. Hey, this is Jack Inslee. I'm the executive producer here at Heritage Radio Network. I've been here at the station since 2009, and I cannot believe just how much this network has grown over that time. We've been able to grow because of donations from people like you. So if you're enjoying this, if you laughed, if you learned something, contribute anything. A dollar, two dollars, ten dollars, a hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, anything counts. And trust me, we'll appreciate seeing your name come through on the donations. So consider visiting heritageradionetwork.org, click on that little beating heart, the donate button, and show us you care. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and with me today is my aunt, Barbara Clayman. Um, before the break, we were talking about our Jewish family's cookie-making tradition around the holidays. Um, ironically. Yes, ironically. Um, and uh, I guess to, to continue on that um, a little bit, I was curious to ask you to talk about um, sort of your personal kind of food journey. I mean, you um, you didn't start out as a as a food professional right in your, in your career life correct i did not um my dad um worked in the 
food service business. He sold kitchens and institutions, kitchen equipment. So he was very familiar with what was going on in a kitchen on a day-to-day basis. And uh, when I was 12 years old, he snuck me into the um, food show at the Javits Center, and that was a floor where all of the culinary students and, and chefs would have competitions. And that was when I truly got bitten by the food bug. And after that, I started watching Julia Child and would start making the things that she was making. So at 13, I was making a balm au trois chocolat, <laughs> and at 14, I was making a pâté à choux, and then at 15, I was boning turkeys so that we'd have a boneless turkey. And to this day, uh, Harry, you bone turkeys yes. <laughs> for your family, and, and I've taught all the nieces and nephews and the, and the kids, and, and it's still a tradition that we, uh, another tradition that we do at Thanksgiving. Everyone has a bone-stuffed turkey on yep. their table. <laughs> but uh, when I got into high school, I decided I wanted to go to culinary school, and my dad said, absolutely not. And he said, you have no idea what it's like in a kitchen of a restaurant, and women are not treated well, and I'm not going to allow you to do that. And I was one of those uh, children who obeyed what their parents said, and I did not go to culinary school. I went to uh, Syracuse University and got a degree in nutrition and food science. So you stuck, and you, left, were, you were close to food. food behind. Still until we moved to Pittsburgh. I did a little catering here and there, but basically had jobs that really were far, far afield from food. Uh, and then you found food again, right? I mean, as a, as in, terms of, in terms of cooking and baking. Um, and then got a, you did get a culinary degree, ultimately. I did, I did. In Pittsburgh... Um, we moved here in, in 2000, and I did have um, a non-food job and then decided that um, I couldn't go on, you know, with blaming my father for not letting me go to culinary school. And so I decided I didn't have any contacts in Pittsburgh, so I went to culinary school here. Mm. And um, it, was, it was fun. I was, of course, the oldest person in the class. They used to call me mom. <laughs> And um, they they looked at me askance until one day one of the the young nineteen year olds uh, kind of sidled up to me and said uh, Miss Barb and I said yes and he said uh, did you do the homework and I said yes and he said could you help me <laughs> and so so then it, then it became um, a very different experience where uh, the chefs who taught it would sometimes say um, I'm leaving for half an hour Barb you take over the class. <laughs> And but it was it was a delight, and I I was actually hired before I even graduated by the food company Giant Eagle, which is very big out here in the in the western part of Pennsylvania, and uh, became a demo chef, and and that just you know triggered everything and anything I ever wanted to do in food, and and got back into it again. That's great, and and I think it's a really it's great that you're now in a position moving from that to starting your own starting your own food company, starting your own business. It is. And I always wanted to own a restaurant. And, and they're really, you know, as much as I, I'm not a, a huge fan of Anthony Bourdain, when he says 
after you're 35, you can't be in a kitchen. He's pretty much right. <laughs> you get too old, too fast, and the hours are too long. Sure. Well, I mean, the, the hours of running your own business are not are not small. You just don't have to be necessarily on your feet standing over a hot flame. But <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And, and I can stand the long hours as long as some of them are sitting down and, you know, in front of a computer. Sure. Sure. Um, now, a, a couple of years ago, you had a bout with breast cancer. Yes, I and did. I, uh, you know, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that um, and curious to know, you know, how did that affect your eating and cooking habits? Dramatically. I uh, went through chemotherapy and everything that everyone says about it is true. You know, you, you lose your ability to taste. You, um, someone suggested, one of the other patients suggested that I not eat anything that I really love during chemotherapy because there's a chance that the flavor will be so dramatically changed because of the drugs that you will then hate it. And so the two things that I chose never to eat during chemo and my treatment were vodka and chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) Because those are the two things that I just adore. And I figured everything else would just follow. Um, the, The really difficult thing is that two of the foods that I did eat while I was on chemo and unfortunately got sick around the same time, I can no longer eat Brussels sprouts or butternut squash, both of which I used to love. And part of that is because I got sick around when I ate them. And so there's that mental um, trigger when you put it in your mouth. Yeah, the taste memory. And the other thing is that um, I was not able to taste salt or sweet. I remember that. I really could not cook things that you would need, like you said before, where a sauce where you taste it and you add things. I remember we went out to a restaurant one night and I got this drink and it was some raspberry iced tea something or other and I was like, man, this thing isn't very sweet. And um, my husband tasted it and your Uncle Tom tasted it and he goes, oh my God, this is like (laughs) sweet syrup. (laughs) And we had many meals where he would say, can you lay off the salt a little? (laughs) Because those things were the hardest things for me to get back, and it, and it took the longest for those things to get back. So um, it was it was very difficult. Do you um, feel like now, after you know, after going through that, do things now taste the same as they did before the treatment, or are things still a little different? Um, I've been I've been out from chemotherapy about almost almost two and a half three years, and pretty much everything is is back to normal. Um, I still can't eat the butternut squash or the Brussels right. sprouts, and I don't know if that will change. But um, I feel like my tastes are not as sensitive as they were before, and I still have to be very careful with salt hmm. because I still <laughs> still get that look on his face sometimes where he says, you know, too salty. Now, was so, that, was it you know, something? Sometimes, sometimes it just changes your palate. Right. I mean, was it, were you able to smell? things as well. I mean, I, I recently have been, I, I read, there was an article, 
I think it was in the New Yorker a couple weeks ago about, you know, studying taste and smell and, and that kind of thing and how, you know, so much of what we think of related to, to taste really is in the nose, right? I mean, it has to do with the, the volatile oils and things that, you know, and, and flavor compounds that you smell as you chew and not as much with the tongue. I mean, the tongue, obviously, you know, they're salty, sweet, bitter, sour, umami, all those things. But that's really a feeling and not mm -hmm. a taste. And I'm wondering, you know, were you able to smell flowers and perfume and, you know, bread? Were, you know, were the smells still there or did that disappear too? That pretty much, it didn't disappear, but it was, it was altered. Hmm. So smells did not, you know, the smell of bread baking, the smell of uh, chicken roasting, you know, those smells were not as... Um, luscious and, and enticing as before I had chemo. And, you know, it, it took a while for that to come back. A lot of times when we bake, you, and you as well, I know, you can smell something being done before it is. Yep. You know, we can smell the cookies are done before the timer goes off, you know, that kind of thing. I couldn't do any of that. Um, so smell was definitely affected. And by, that, by virtue of that, so many things tasted like sawdust. Hmm. You know, had no taste whatsoever. And was it all was it all negative? I mean, was there anything that you tasted that that actually changed for the better that you liked when you were uh, undergoing chemo? That then, you know, when your taste returned to so called normal, wasn't as good. I don't believe. So. I, I don't think so. Okay. I I Just don't curious. remember that happening. You know, it's such a it's it's such a complete body upheaval when right. you go through chemo that there are so many things going on that for me you know just getting your musculature back being able to to drive again you know um, after surgeries you've got scar tissue mm. so i don't remember that feeling of you know something tasted better something tasted worse right uh I, you know that that doesn't come to mind got it um you uh you describe yourself now as being someone who is vegan-ish Yes. <laughs> um, can you can you explain what vegan-ish means? <laughs> vegan-ish. Uh, I became a vegan six years ago because my lipid levels and cholesterol levels were slowly creeping up and up and up. And, and after talking with my PCP, uh, realized that eventually, if they kept going as they were, I would be on some beta blocker or whatever, those lipid torque type things. And mm. I didn't want to do that. And so she, I said, I'm going to change my diet. And, and at the time that there was the fireman diet, which was a vegan diet, which was changing people's lives and their, their lipid levels were going down. So I became a vegan and just literally overnight stopped eating all meat, stopped eating all dairy, which I love dairy. So that was, that was the tragedy in my life. Meat, eh, but dairy I love. But I, I was good. I was really, for a year, I did not touch any of that. Um, I found I couldn't eat enough beans and lentils and all those other things to get my protein, so I decided fish would be okay. Mm. You know, and so, so it wasn't an ethical dilemma I was having. It was totally health-related. So I would eat fish, so therefore I call myself vegan-ish for the, for the fish. <laughs> for the fish, yeah. <laughs> no, I think, uh, I think that's a, a good way to describe it. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm really sorry that we're out of time. Um, oh, but I, okay. This I, has been so much fun. It's been it's been fantastic, and it's been great to hear you know some stories that I already knew and some things that I didn't. Um, and I really I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to come on the show. And I encourage everybody to check out barbsbars.com and see what Barb is cooking up. Thanks so much, Harry. Been a pleasure. 
Um, thank you for listening to Feast Your Ears. This is, again, the final show of my first season. I'm very pleased that I will be back again in the spring. A uh, big thank you to Kristen Baylor, who's my producer here at Feast Your Ears, and Liz Smith, who engineers this show every Wednesday. It's been a great season, and I'll be back with more interesting and exciting guests come January. Thanks very much. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 non-profit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.